on today's episode. I never had the slightest doubt about this approach. Because first of all, I thought, if I treat you with esteem and regard, regard engenders responsibility, and out of responsibility comes creativity. Which means that if human beings feel highly regarded, they are more creative. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott-Gall. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Slightly unusual start to today's podcast in that I'm standing outside in the village of Solomeo in Umbria in Italy. With me, I have my colleague, Simon Fennell. Hello. And we are both very excited about the interview that we have coming up. So we want to tell you a little bit about it. The village of Solomeo is the home of Brunello Cuccinelli, who is our guest today. It's more than his home, however. He has built this village almost from scratch. He certainly renovated this village. He started his eponymous company in 1978. And one of the principles of his company and indeed of his life is the idea of humanistic capitalism, which is treating people with dignity, but also treating his environment with dignity. He has poured a lot of money into this village. It's very, very impressive. And Simon, perhaps you could describe the scene we see in front of us. So in many ways, this is a typical Umbrian, perhaps even Tuscan, Italian mountaintop town or hilltop town. What's most impressive about it really has been how beautifully restored it has been. There's the church and the the steeple just at the top. On our left, you might hear the bell chiming fairly soon. There is the store. We're just below where the tailoring school is and just across from where Mr. Cuccinelli built a theater a few years ago and just above the library. So the town has many of the elements of, of dignita enmeshed in it. It's been beautifully done and has become something of a, of a destination in its own right. Most of the work is done slightly further down the hill, just into the valley here where the design studios are, some of the, um, the, the offices, as well as the production sites. And I think it used to be up here. The company has obviously expanded very significantly over the last 10, 20, 30 years or so. Uh, and we've moved down, as it were, down into the valley below. We can see broadly to the left here, uh, some football pitches, uh, some vineyards, most of the important elements of a proper Italian life. But in many ways, the village has become Become something of a reflection of Mr. Cuccinelli's approach to business, to life, and to, to many other elements beyond. Thank you. Yeah. And so I think that naturally segues into what are we looking forward to in this interview? And I, I would say, obviously, at one level, we're looking forward to really hearing about how do you make it in the, in the fashion luxury industry, a, a brutally competitive industry. And his brand itself isn't that old versus some of the some of his competition, which have much older brands. So that is very interesting. The second part, I think, which we would really want to focus on is this idea of humanistic capitalism, treating your whole ecosystem in a fair way and with dignity and the idea of a fair rate of profit. Mr. Cuccinelli, his company, gives back 20% of its profits to the foundation every year, which is unusual. And I think you could argue that he certainly is ahead of his time in this idea 
of profit with purpose, fair growth, fair profitability, treatment of employees, suppliers, whole ecosystem very well. So that, that would be interesting. Simon, what else are you looking forward to exploring? Well, it's, it's known that Mr. Cuccinelli refers to some of his teachers and mentors from a philosophical point of view extensively, and it's not unknown for him to talk about Voltaire or John Ruskin, William Morris, a number of historical figures that he sees as playing an important role, both in the framing of his approach and arguably a more sort of philosophical approach to the idea of, of this new capitalism. I think He's made a number of references to you know, a huge, broad, diverse number of writers, thinkers, you know, way back into the sort of classics, ancient Rome and Greece. So I, I always find it interesting that he brings those elements in and makes them particularly real. The second part is that he's also very focused on relevance. The clothes that he makes need to have a relevance today from a fashion perspective. They need to have a relevance to the consumers and that he's very aware that he needs to marry some elements of this sort of classics, classicist approach with a, a relevance of today. You know, that's not an easy line to tread, and, and he seems to do it particularly well. So those two elements, I think, are going to be fascinating. I agree, I agree. And I think we also want to make sure we touch on his creative process. And so before we start thinking about his creative process, could we talk about your creative process with perhaps the most important issue of the day, which is what are you going to wear when you meet one of the world's preeminent fashion designers? This is a, an area of great discussion over the past few weeks and months. And from a pressure perspective, I'm confident? not sure. I'm not confident at all. No, you don't look it. <laughs> from a pressure perspective, I think that this is uh, is up there with, uh, with a few other classic sporting elements here, that there's quite a lot of pre-match nerves in terms of the strip that one will be wearing tomorrow. Probably very conservative, perhaps a bit more English than Italian, but you never know. Yeah, look, I think with a bit of luck, we should scrape through. Scrape through. But I like you got to wear a tie. I share your lack of confidence. <laughs> we'll just default to a boring English suit. We'll panic. So look, that's it. We will check in at the end of the interview to reflect on how it went and also for the all-important verdict on whose outfit he preferred. I'm delighted to have with me today Mr. Brunello Cuccinelli, his amazing translator Chiara, and of course Simon. Mr. Cuccinelli, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Perhaps I could start by asking you, what came first? Was it fashion or was it humanistic capitalism? Which way around? I think that humanistic capitalism came first. Why am I saying this? Because the first part of my life, I dedicated it to build my thought. We were living in the countryside until I was 15. We had no electricity at home. We had no running water. And this was a very special situation. We used to work our land with animals. So what kind of relationship do you entertain with the land, with the creation, with the animals? A very fascinating and charming one. Because, first of all, when you have no electricity at home, what do you do? You, do? you follow the course of the sun over the sky. And there was my grandfather, a very charming figure, and in the evening he would gaze up at the sky 
senza elettricità non hai rumore. Because you are, have no noise if you have no electricity at home. E diceva And he would say, may God send us a fair amount of wind, sunlight, fog, cold. Everything was supposed to come with fair quantities. That's why I was always fascinated by the concept of fairness. I was between 8-12-14 years of age, I was not a child anymore, so these uh, words by my grandfather stayed with me. When we harvested our wheat, that's a very interesting point, we would make 140-150 bags of wheat, and my grandfather would always take the very first bag and give it back to the community, not the last one of the harvest. That's when I started envisaging of how I could put together making a small profit in perfect balance with giving back. Because for me, this bag of wheat was some sort of gift of giving back. It was a small one, mind you, but still it was a gift from, from creation. So as I said, we were plowing, working the land with animals, and my father used to say to me, Mind you, your furrows must be always very straight, because I was the one in charge of pulling the oxen. And I would say to my father, why do you want them to be straight? Because they look better. So we enjoyed this very basic, beautiful relationship with the land. And I call it some sort of relationship according to nature. Fare un po di But the basic idea was to make a fair profit with our work and then giving back. And I believe this to be a very contemporary approach. So, still, I had no idea what would become of me at a later stage of my life. But I did know well, you know, that my parents, my family, we had an extended family of 13 people, and sometimes my parents were humiliated and offended. And I was, it, I was not very happy, I was upset with that daily offense. But when you live in a countryside and you live like that, you breathe fairness. So my idea of capitalism, I could say, really was originated in my childhood. Behind you there's a beautiful picture of Confucius who stated, when I was 20 I focused on my studies, at 30 I was a fully-fledged, formed personality, at 40 I sorted out my relationship with life, And at 50, I found the right way to deal with the heavens, with the afterlife. What's why I say this? I say it because when I was 15 in the countryside, I was already a fully formed human being. Then we moved to the city, the family, my father took up a job in a factory, I was 16-17, and when he came back home in the evening he had been subject to humiliation, he was 45 or so. 
And seeing my dad with tearful eyes, humiliated, I was upset, obviously. And I couldn't really understand why human beings should be humiliated. He never complained about the small wages or how hard his job was. But he did moan about the fact that he was subject to humiliation on a daily basis. So when I was 16 or 17, I said, I don't know what will become of me in my life, but I do want to do something to foster human dignity. I want to try and work respecting human beings. All this came before fashion. So those are very, very noble ideals, but I imagine there are times when they were, when they were tested. You, you talk a lot about making a fair profit, but to make a fair profit, you first have to have a profit. So were there, were there times when you doubted this approach or were you just constant at believing you knew that that was the right thing to do? I never had the slightest doubt about this approach. Because first of all, I thought, if I treat you with esteem and regard, regard engenders responsibility and out of responsibility comes creativity which means that if human beings feel highly regarded, they are more creative. So there's no doubt about this. And the other great theme, who are we? Well, I think I am some sort of small-scale guardian of mankind. And I wanted to make a profit whilst at the same time upholding ethics and dignity. Because, you see, each and every one of us, when we go home at night, well, we have a mirror in our homes. And maybe the ancient, our ancient fathers didn't. And when you are faced with a mirror, you are faced with yourself. And you then ask yourself, what kind of life am I leading? Where does my profit stem from? And honestly, I think that that's when you really think about how you are behaving in life. Well, of course, at least in my case, seeing how proud my father and grandfather were for donating, giving uh, the small bag of wheat after receiving something from creation, engendered fascination. And I, my ideas were even more supported and strengthened. What is our purpose in life? We must be temporary guardians and custodians, safekeepers. But during, for the duration of our life, whether it is long or short, with a small or large business, like my father says, who's still alive, why can't we be good people? respectable people. In February, March, the Forbes uh, ranking comes out and my father was shown this ranking by Forbes and she's 88 and I'm not sure he really understands the scale of it all, the extent of it all. But he said something uh, nice to me. I was told that you are a rich man. I'm very happy for you. But what really matters to me is that you are a good man. And if you think about it, when I was 12, 13, he used 
to say to me, you must be a good boy. So he didn't go to school or university. He didn't even speak Italian properly. Dignity, respect, moral and economic dignity of human beings. That's where I started building my life. And then, when I was 18, 19 years of age, during these very uh, lively, interesting discussions at the Italian Café, which was a place, a meeting point for us, when Heraclitus said, Polymus is father and master of mankind. Polymus is discussion, is Greek for discussion. So, I had come across a great statement by a philosopher Kant. I was 18, and this really ended my thought. My thinking a path and he said you should act uh, considering mankind both for yourself and others not as simple means but as the noblest aim and purpose so when I was 20 I had the noble purpose of mankind in my mind the moral and economic dignity of human being already ingrained in my brain, and also the great balance between profit and giving back. So I can say that I had all my tools in my box. I was fully fledged. Regardless of the kind of professional business I would venture in, a worker, an entrepreneur, my, myself, so to speak, was ready. That's when also my humanistic capitalism was ready. It was fully built. Even if I had chosen to be a clerk or a worker, this was my idea of capitalism already there. Because a company, a business, must make a profit. That's the objective, the target of the business. But you have to wonder, what is a fair profit? And whilst achieving this profit, were you uh, complying with ethics? The whole supply chain, was the result of this was a fair profit, both for the raw material, uh, for the workers, banks, investors, business, all the different stakeholders. And, and were you thinking about this as an entrepreneur when you were 20, that this idea would be from an entrepreneurial perspective? No, no, devo dire di no. Honestly speaking, no. It was my idea of a life. But when I was 18, I did start uh, reading these ancient thinkers, not many of them, but all of them prompted me to feel like a temporary guardian of mankind. Alexander the Great, you know, he said, the only thing I own, although he was an important, powerful emperor, is the land where I'm standing. So it was my, the dream that I had cherished all my life. Then, of course, I led the typical life of a young Italian gentleman in the 60s. I basically uh, was enrolled in the engineering faculty. I only took one exam because nobody would study and revise. We were just spending our time revising, uh, sorry, discussing women, philosophy, theology. This was life back then. 
you see when you spend time when you hang uh, out in an Italian cafe it's a very fascinating place because when you are there there is always someone willing to listen to your sorrows and today it is not so often that we did come across somebody who's willing to listen so it was an ideal life and then at 25 I decided to manufacture colored cashmere from day one my dream was to manufacture something whilst uh, with ethics and and dignity and I wanted this profit to be earmarked to the business part of it so that it was was supposed to be stronger and then part of this profit should go to myself but I live in a small village so I don't have do not have many demands and then part also should be allocated to the people working for the company through a higher wages you see in Italy still today uh, wages are just above uh, 1200 1300 euros a month on average whereas if your workers have a chance to make maybe 1600 euros that's a life changer it's a game changer i wanted my managers not to make more than eight nine times the wages of the uh, average uh, workers not over eight, nine times. And that's when this idea took root. So it was a very small scale business with no means at the beginning, but still and always from day one, respecting creation. Do you feel that humanistic capitalism and sustainability are the same thing? Or is sustainability a increasingly used phrase and expression as a sort of maybe as a sort of cover story, maybe even a sort of greenwashing, and that it's the right thing for companies to say, but are they really doing it underneath? So I guess I'm interested to think whether you think the two terms should not be used interchangeably. That actually sustainability, as people most people use it, actually doesn't mean the same thing as humanistic capitalism. Well, honestly, I keep saying to my staff that we should stop talking about this type of sustainability. The way I want to call it is human sustainability, together with living in harmony with creation. We did live in harmony with creation in the countryside. Today, we still want to work and live in harmony with creation. So, and living in harmony means respecting the land, human beings, the, the wildlife. Everything must happen according to nature. Nature. So, a fair profit, combining profit and giving back, then you have olive oil and you have wine that then you serve at the corporate canteen. You have orchards, you have wheat. We, don't, we do not call it organic. It is basically cropped according to nature. Exactly the same as 50 years ago, when we did not have any additives or anything. The same thing as it was done traditionally. So that's what matters. However, the word itself, sustainability, I don't think it's, a, it's really... A, meaningful word. What you need to add is something to it, to it. So it needs to encompass fair profit, harmony with creation, giving back, respect for the human being, for the wildlife, 
for the human beings. And everything must be authentic in the first place. For example, honestly speaking, I do not think that in the future our young customers will buy something from a brand that they know has had a preposterous profit, then refuse point blank to do that. They want to know whether the wildlife, the human beings were respected during the manufacturing process, because every young customer making a purchase, they gather information. Where was it made? How was it made? How much profit came out of it? Therefore, I think there's a really important change underway. And there's no doubt the internet was the gate opener here. Everybody knows everything about anybody else. So there's no chance that you can hide anymore. So I think that the web is some sort of ethicalizing instrument of a contemporary company. That's basically along the same lines as Ruskin and Morris, their idea whereby quality, craftsmanship and humanity all encompassed in work. That's what I wanted to achieve. But you should know human beings by nature carry within themselves some sort of malaise of their soul, some aching of their soul. It can be stronger at some times or lighter for some people. At this moment in time, the burden is even heavier because of the fact that we are online all the time. In your view, is it sustainable for a human being at work at the workplace to be online all the time? It is not. For example, in this company, you turn up for work at 8 sharp, everybody, we work until 1 p.m., then a long lunch break until 2.30, and then we work until half past five. But it is forbidden to be online for business later on. And we do 85% of our business is exported. Nevertheless, you are not supposed to be online on Saturdays and Sundays or receive emails. But, and if we have something important to discuss, we make phone calls. And in this case, what is required is respect for the intimacy of human beings, for the privacy of human beings. And as an entrepreneur, as an employer, I don't, do not want to steal your soul because I have forced you to be online and available all the time. Human beings need their freedom. Every day they need to look after their mind through study, their mind through work, and then through praying, and then work. We have to find the right balance between work, mind, soul, the possibility to gaze up at the sky. And do you think that, I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit there, that we're going to see increasing differentiation from consumers between brands and the value that brands represent will be more and more visible and be more and more important. And maybe this won't be symmetrical, that good brands may not necessarily be rewarded, but bad brands will certainly be punished. Uh, no, no, There's no doubt about this. 
181 important listed companies, American companies, a couple of years, a month ago, they signed an important agreement and they changed their purpose, their date back to 1972. They said, today they say, our purpose is no longer value for the shareholders. It must be a fair profit. It must be human being, the earth and creation. I think that this is a game changer for mankind. This is the, the idea of young people, or Greta Thunberg, for that matter. Maybe it is one of the biggest movements in the history of mankind, and it springs from young people. And human beings can definitely make a change if they're faced with the tearful eyes of a child. Or I went to a greatest... Um, demonstration with my nine-year-old granddaughter. She wanted me to go and we went together. So it means that something is at work here. And I'm now going back to this great topic. Through the web, I can know everything about you, how much money you make, how you behave, how your company behaves. This is a great change that creation has brought about, which means that whether you like it or not, you must be better on one condition that what you said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, is still there, still saved somewhere. So you can't possibly change your mind because everybody can retrieve what you said years ago. And my answer to your question is, in order to be credible, you must be true to yourself. When things go well, when things go less well, we might be more worried, less concerned. And then I think that something else is at play here. Businesses in general, they somehow need to go back to the way the ancient people used to plan. It is our duty, as the Greeks told us, it is our duty to leave you a more beautiful city than the one we inherited. But Pericles, when he basically presents the project of the Parthenon to the Athenians, he said, until the Parthenon stands, our Athens will live. And when Jeff Bezos and the other tech friends came here for three days, they had no mobile phone. And nobody forbade them to from using the mobile phone, but nobody did. The topics we discussed were what we think about mankind, where your soul lies, what our responsibilities are towards the creation for the next hundred, two thousand years. And they were three really fascinating days. That's why I say that all of a sudden mankind is different. Of course, the web, the internet has changed things. It is really a very interesting time we are living in. But in order to be credible, you must be authentic. And I don't, do not want to make a profit that is not fair. When each and every one of us go to bed at night, we take stock of our soul. Whether you like it or not, you do take stock. And if the result does not please you, what you try and do is to try and forget about it, turn around and sleep. But if you are happy with your reckoning and you have a better relationship with creation, your life is easier. 
I want to enjoy good relationships with everybody without any uh, prejudice in terms of race, culture, religion, nothing. But I do not want to have anything to do with people that are not good. Socrates once said, I think that at the end of one's life, things will be different for good people than for bad people. And if it wasn't the case, I would have lived better anyway. So I want to be just a small-scale guardian for a short period of time someone who has made a fair profit whilst respecting every individual. Now, it's been 40 years that we have had this business, but for 40 years we have shown the very same respect and treatment to women and men. But 40 years ago, not just today because we're all human beings. So I would like this business to live forever. I know it's not possible, but we do plan and think as if this company was to stand in this valley for the next 200 years. And then, when you reach the last day of your life, oh, by the way, I want to say something interesting here. Uh, someone, an elderly man, passed away here in the village, and the priest said, Brunello, what can I say about this man? And I said, just stay, say that he was a good man. Just say that a good man left us. And I think that's the best gift that he would have wanted from life. Can I ask about Italy? You have some incredible thinkers from Italy on, on the wall. I'm thinking perhaps of someone along the lines of St. Benedict. Some of the ideas that you're talking about are very Italian in many ways, admittedly classical rather than potentially contemporary, but there are other strands coming from Italy. I'm thinking perhaps of the slow food movement which is very in line with what you're talking about. Your style is, of course, Italian beautifully. And I'm, I'm wondering what role Italy, both modern and ancient, plays in, in your thoughts. Questo mi fa molto onore. Well, I'm very honored by your statements. I'd like to start from a statement said by Plato when he came to Siracusa in 200 before Christ, and he stated something fascinating for me as Italians, as an Italian. He said, these people from Syracuse and these Italians who basically binge eat twice a day, and they never want to go to bed alone. And already, as Italians, we're talking about, we're talk, talking philosophy. So, of course, I'm very proud of being Italian. So, I'm never worried when someone talks about politics in Italy, because, you see, I'm 66 years of age, and I have witnessed 66 governments here. So, I cannot afford to be worried about changing government on a yearly basis. I just know one thing. We are manufacturers that rank second only to Germany in Europe, and we are located at the very top of the pyramid because we are the best luxury manufacturer in the world. And this is true for fashion or mechanics or many other industries. 
Italian sono young people sono bravi a are very fascinating because they are used to managing things when they're not so linear, Abbiamo the unexpected. We are very uh, open to the world. We, are, we always have been for millennia and this dates back to the Roman Empire. So this is what makes me proud. And maybe at least my thinking is that we are one of the best nations in terms of the way we live. For example, we have free health care for everybody and we have public education too. So what I say is that our welfare state definitely protects and defends everybody in terms of offering free education and healthcare. So I'm proud of my splendid Italy. Of course, we have manufacturing, manufactured product, that's our core. We are not that much, you know, savvy in finance because we come from business and industry. You see, I was talking with the guys of the Silicon Valley, they're all young people except for Jeff Bezos, who's 53. So I was saying to them, our corporate culture is slightly different to yours. So what we do, we set up business and we think it should uh, survive for 200 years for our next generations, even too much. We are very much attached to our land. This is very important, the value of the surroundings, of the location, because that's where our soul is. So as I was saying to the Silicon people, Silicon Valley people, where is your soul? And for some of them, their soul is not in the Silicon Valley, they were born elsewhere. So what I said to them is sometimes you set up business, you sell it, you make your proceeds and then you move on to something else. This is, you know, different cultures, both respectable but different. Whereas we are classic manufacturers. So I am here to praise my people, my Italians, and I would like each and every one of us to praise their own people, their own nation, because I've always thought that if human beings could do that, it would be advisable for each and every one to live where they were born, because that's your ego, that's where yourself was formed. So, you need to live in harmony with creation, human sustainability, Technology coupled with humanism. I think that in the future, true luxury in life will be to lead a life that is not known by our smartphone. Because every human being, they need to have a public, a private, and a secret life. It's not that, you know, the secret life, there's nothing really outrageous to hide, but everybody has a secret life. So I think that we can dare talk about human privacy and technology, they should go together. 
I always say to my staff, let's always source the best, the most cutting-edge technologies, but we should always be able to rule them and control them. We should behave as humanist artisans of the web. And so we work, we navigate the web world as if we were artisans. So these artisans that were so dear to William Morris and John Ruskin, but there is a new form of capitalism underway. But let's go back to this for one moment. Why shouldn't capitalism be contemporary like everything else? I think that capitalism is as, as old as the world, but it needs, it needs to basically go ahead at the same rate as mankind, develop at the same rate. And someone important in Italy the other day told me capitalism cannot exist. I disagree. I am a classic capitalist, but I would like to be the pursuer of a contemporary capitalism with a fair profit, so with a fair capital, with a fair relationship to creation. So I guess those two concepts can coexist. You can have classic capitalism and contemporary capitalism. And so for you, it must be very, very important to stay, to stay relevant, to stay relevant in your, in your products. So you're talking about contemporary capitalism, but you need to make sure a fair profit presupposes a profit and a profit comes from having products that customers want to buy. And no doubt the values that, that you embody will be attractive, but the products themselves still have to be attractive. So, so how much do you think about staying relevant and, and what is your process to make sure you stay relevant? Well, every company can survive only and exclusively on contemporary products. Otherwise, there is no chance. But there's one thing today. So to have a contemporary relevant product is key. But before, you would only present your product to your audience, whereas nowadays you also present your business. If your company is a relevant company but it has no relevant product, it does not work. If you have a contemporary product not backed up by a relevant business, then it is difficult to survive. So I think that the relevance of products also stems from the courage you have to listen to others. Because there's no way around it. If you become successful, you stop listening. That's the that's human nature for you. Whereas in the art of listening, a work by Plutarch, he stated that 50% of his issues were solved simply by listening. So if we have creativity, respect and genius, we might end up with a relevant product. You see, in Italy, we struggle to accept the fact that we it's no longer up to us to manufacture low-end goods. That's for the uh, no 
Indian Chinese uh, customers. They do not expect low-level manufacturing from us. We have lost that kind of bracket. And as a result, we have three, four percent more unemployment because we've lost this piece of the market. But in order to recover, we have to employ uh, these unemployed workers in high-end companies now. But that's the way it works because we have redesigned the world labor market. And for Italy, for some countries, and the same also goes for uh, your England or Germany, the whole world expects from us, from Europe, very high-level, high-quality um, handicrafted goods. That's why I see in Europe a great manufacturer of exceptional products for this century. Europe is a forger of that. We are scared because in the, uh, we, Europe was big in the 19th century. The 20th century was the century of America, but this century is the century of China my esteemed China. So, all together, respecting each other, there's no doubt that we can succeed. Someone might wonder, are you not scared of custom duties? Well, I think that we are so intertwined together, the whole of mankind, that it will be difficult to really wage great trade wars because we are too interconnected. That's why I'm fascinated by this world. Here's a very simple question. How do you set your prices? Well, it's a very interesting question how we set our prices. Well, we take into account the fair costs so that every stakeholder is fairly remunerated, the raw materials, producers, uh, the workers, down to the end product. Then we also take into account what a fair profit for the company could be. We have always maintained that a business, according to our idea, they, we should have a net profit of 10% every year. Our company is an Italian company and I want to be taxed here in Italy, to pay taxes in Italy. We have a 30% tax rate, which I consider fair for a developed country as Italy is, because we do not have any offices or branches elsewhere in the world for tax reasons, just Italy. Then you might say, maybe 10% net profit could be too much. I don't know, but I've always been used to thinking about what fair profit is, and this is my conclusion. Because those who buy your products, they should know that the product, the item they buy, has been manufactured with, a, with fairness. I myself would, would feel uncomfortable wearing or purchasing uh, something by a brand that has made a profit that is not, doesn't really add up. Could you talk a little about your creative process, both you as an individual, but also within the company? How has it evolved over time? So I imagine it probably has evolved. And what's the role of diversity, as in having people in the room with different experiences, different training, different perspectives, different viewpoints? How, how do you avoid, I guess two questions, maybe they're a little bit, a little bit blunt, but how do you avoid groupthink? And how do you encourage people to disagree with you or not always try and second guess what it is you want. 
Well, first of all, I think that people feel empowered when they feel that they get respect, when they are paid a fair, fair wages, and when they know they, they're working not to harm or not to the detriment of humankind. Would you be willing to work for a company that gives you low wages, working in, a place, in conditions that are not too pleasant? Because, you know, uh, we were taught that if you raise your gaze to the heavens, you waste time. Whereas creativity might also entail distra being distracted from for a second. So this is the first message to young people. Secondly, you need to be surrounded by many young people and be willing to listen to them. So there's 2,000 people in this company. About 100 people make up this style team. 10 for menswear and 10 for women's wear, for the first level menswear and women's wear, and plus myself. And I want to be your classic creative director Però avere il coraggio di but at the same time I want to listen to genius what I want to be is the coordinator of genius so you might have more genius in color the other one might have more genius in style more genius in visual merchandising and all together we combine it all and of course if you convey fear to them if you intimidate them they will not express themselves if you pay them little that's then then will end up not voicing their opinion i've always thought that a great a top manager should never earn more than eight, nine times the average uh, wage of the other staff. Whereas if you made 100 times the other workers, that those other workers would feel belittled and as a result they would be less creative. I can still, I do hope that this company is able to stay here in this valley for the next century. It might not be the case, but this is my purpose. When you grow fairly, your corporate culture grows along, your people grows along, and the community also grows along in a gracious way. I never wanted to implement the stock option plans in my company. This was a very precise decision from my side. I wanted my managers to have their own fair remuneration, but not something prompting them to make huge profits in just a short period of time. I wanted them to see, to envisage the company long term. So I want to be a guardian, a custodian of my company. The time we devote to our company must be in harmony. Balance, harmony, it is all part of that human privacy, of that living according to nature, of harmony and human sustainability. At the end of the day, I would like this company to be a company, a business that believes in moral and economic and humanistic dignity of human beings. Well, I'd like to say... Thank you very much for giving us so much of your time. It's been fascinating, hugely insightful, and really quite different from the average interview we do. So 
If I could just thank you, Mr. Cuccinelli, again, Chiara, superb translation, and of course, Simon. Thank you very much. No, grazie a voi, io sono onorato. Thank you. I know you came to visit, you viewed our company, you met our family, and I am honored that you came here to learn about our vision. augurarvi una una continua modo di comportarsi come I wish for you to keep behaving like you are and I would also like to add that maybe we should not underestimate the fact that the sky, the stars, creation very often can show us the way in life. We should try and be good people and thank you, thank you very much from the deep of my heart. Thank you. So as promised, here is our post-interview recap. We won't spend long, but I think it is worth just discussing what we heard and to reflect on it. And I think the reason for doing that is we spent a lot of time in the interview around the notion of humanistic capitalism. It's clearly something that Mr. Cuccinelli wanted to talk about a lot. But I think the reason to spend time on it and hear him really explain it is because it is different. It is unusual what what he and his company are doing. So I, I, I in particular, thought... The time he spent on that was, was very important to do. Also, I think hearing him talk about how he set prices, I found very interesting. He, he's Through the interview, he said a lot of times, fair, fair, I want to make a fair profit, set fair prices. And I think that's something that's very front of mind for him. So I don't know if you agree, Simon, or, or, or indeed you think there are other things you, you've taken away from it, but I think that I hope you agree it was worth us spending the time on on explaining what he sees as humanistic capitalism. So, so for me, it was the breadth of the vision of that humanistic capitalism, that it encompasses a very broad array of interests. Those working at the company, those as suppliers in the supply chain, those in the retail stores, just the, in the whole ecosystem or the environment of the business that he's in and the element of that process of a humanist capitalism, it's much broader than a discussion on ESG, than a discussion on narrow sustainability that's often quite product-related or at least ingredients-related, as it were. So for me, the breadth of that was crucial to hear and, and the passion behind his description of it was really key for me. So that breadth of the approach was classic and, and important. The, the second part that struck me was the depth of thought in terms of the approach is very different. And while there are elements in terms of sustainability, crusades around the place, his vision of it is incredibly deeply thought out, has been for a while. This is not a Johnny-come-lately scenario. And that's that's very interesting. So the breadth of it and the depth of it were different to that which I thought we'd we'd go into and was fascinating. Now, we spent time prepping for this interview. We also spent time, we need to be honest about this, prepping what we were going to wear. I think it's important in life to acknowledge a well-earned victory and it's important to acknowledge when you've lost. I am now prepared to acknowledge that I've lost, that your outfit garnered immediate Attention immediate, from Mr. Cuccinelli. Immediate, yes. And, and, yours and everything. Did, and yours did not. Uh, mine did not. Now, later on, once we finished the interview, once he'd finished readjusting your collar and, and 
praising you. Thank you. I caught up a bit of ground. There were some compliments that he said very nice things about that we were very well turned out in a classically English way. But I, I, I have to say on this occasion, you take the plaudits. Now, in no way am I a sore loser, but I do want to make two points. Two one points. is you are wearing one of his jackets. And a pocket square. And the second point is you're wearing a pocket square. Yes. So, so that was planned, and you, might, you could see that as an ambush of you. I think, no, I think it's fine. I, I think it's, it's fine. It's within the rules, right? I think, that, I mean, there, there are no real rules here, as you have shown. <laughs> so I think, I think your victory is well-deserved, and I'm very pleased for you. And I think the creativity, the imagination, and, and frankly, the wallet required to buy a jacket from him yes. and Pocket Square means that your victory is something that should warm you and don't, lead, don't feel bad. lead to a pleasing glow don't feel over bad. the next 12 to 24 hours. Thank you. I take that. Thank you. Well, fair play. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.